All right. Well, thanks for coming. And uh, just in case you are here tonight and you're not sure why, this is lesson planning and teaching skills. So hopefully you're in the right room. You didn't sign up to be a junior high leader or something down the hall. So we're only going to be meeting for uh, three weeks, and um, obviously there's a lot you could talk about with regard to teaching and lesson planning. You could spend a lot of time doing that, but we're going to try to pack it into about six hours, and I hope that um, this will benefit you as you, uh, some of you I know are life group leaders or Sunday school teachers, or you teach men or women in the church, or maybe you would like to just hone your general communication skills. Um, and I hope that this course will be of help to you as you um, as you engage in those ministries. So, can you relate to the following scenarios? At least one. So you wake up Sunday morning and you're eating your oatmeal, and suddenly it dawns on you that you're supposed to teach uh, in the Sunday school class that day. But um, that shock uh, suddenly. Uh, dissipates when you just remind yourself it's not really a big deal because you can just read from the curriculum anyway. Or you are a veteran teacher. You've taught Sunday school maybe for 15 years. You've always used curriculum. And one day you're asked to speak on one of those infamous assigned topics. And for all your Googling, you can't find someone else's material. So you're stuck. You have to create your own lesson and you've never done that before. Or you're teaching uh, a young adult class or group, and um, the material you're using has 10 questions in it, and you have 45 minutes, and there's a lot of great dialogue, and after 45 minutes, you've only covered three questions. What do you do? Have you failed as a teacher because you didn't cover all 10 questions? Or your life group has ran out of ideas as to what book to study, and they all want to study the theme of fill in the blank, but you can't find a book on it. What do you do? Uh, some of you can perhaps relate to that. I know I've seen these scenarios play out in the life of our church, and this course is intended to address some of those things uh, by helping us to learn some of the techniques and skills for developing lesson plans and we're sort of going to weave together the development of lesson plans with principles behind good teaching because really I think they go hand in hand with each other. So different principles, we're going to talk about some of the, um, uh, some of the ideas that have been presented with regard to how people learn and how we can present and how we ask questions and how we put together thought flow and all that kind of good stuff with regard to lesson planning. And some of these um, uh, techniques and tools will also help those of you that are involved in secular teaching. I know some of you are school teachers. It will also help those of you that may be involved in preaching or monologue type presentations. But primarily it's going to focus on teaching from a Christian perspective in some sort of a small group or classroom type setting, okay? So let's talk about the goal of lesson planning. And, and some of this stuff might sound simplistic to you, but I actually uh, think that some of this stuff is is uh, is really really important because I'm not sure that we all think this way. So let's talk about the goal of lesson planning. So we have some options that are uh, presented to us. So the goal of teaching um, is the goal of teaching. Just get this thing working here. Is the goal of teaching lesson planning? 
Yes or no? No. So that answers, whether you know it or not, that answers the scenario. If I can't get through all my questions, does it really matter? No. Because the goal of teaching is not to get through your lesson. I want to say that again. It's one of the most important things I'll say in the next three weeks. The goal of teaching is not to get through your lesson. That's not the goal of teaching. Is it teaching? If it's teaching, isn't the goal of teaching teaching? Well, if the goal of teaching is teaching, then it's all for you, and it's not for the student, if that's the goal of teaching. But you have this notion that some teachers teach as if the goal of teaching is teaching. It's, it's to give them a platform to say what they want to say, and everybody has to listen regardless of whether or not anybody's learning. And so I would answer the question, is the goal of teaching teaching? No, it's not the goal of teaching. The goal of teaching is this, spiritual transformation. From a Christian perspective, that's the goal of teaching. So in this course, for instance, we're not studying the Bible per se, but if as a result of my efforts in teaching you, you are able to use this material to transform lives, so it might be two steps removed, but you're able to use this material to transform lives, then I've actually succeeded as a teacher. But if at the end of our three weeks, none of you can use this to help people's lives be transformed, then I've actually failed as a teacher. So I want you to, to write this, this concept down and just kind of go over it and go over it and go over it. My goal is not to teach, my goal is transformation. Now, we know there's a, a spiritual dynamic to that, and that only God can do what God can do. But as much as God has called some to be teachers to participate in the act of disseminating information that leads to life change, my goal is to see transformation. So I can tell you this as a preacher. When I preach, and obviously uh, spiritual transformation is not always measurable, certainly not in the immediate but when I preach and I look back over maybe six months of preaching or years of preaching, if I can't see that people's lives have been transformed through the preaching, then I'm not a good preacher. I don't care how, how uh, skilled I may be at presenting or writing things out or asking questions. If lives haven't been transformed, I'm just up there yapping. So I want you to think about this as you enter into your life groups, your classes, your classrooms, and you are teaching people, your goal is life transformation. And this basic concept is going to affect everything else we talk about over the next three Tuesday nights. So I'm going to approach this from, the, from a, a, a learner-oriented perspective. Uh, I believe that the teacher needs to be far more concerned with the learning process and the transformational processes in the student than he or she should be with getting a lesson plan down, you know, doing it right, asking the right questions, getting through the questions, getting through the material, having people attend, or whatever it might be that that person thinks is important to them. So what is the goal of lesson planning? My goal is spiritual transformation. So think about this. Lesson planning aids in teaching. Lesson planning, we said no, that's not the goal of it, but lesson planning is important insofar as it aids in teaching. 
We said teaching's not the goal, but teaching is important insofar as it leads to spiritual transformation. So that's the three-step sequence. We plan so that we can teach, so that we can see lives transformed. But we don't stop at the first step, and we don't stop at the second step. We want to go all the way to the third step. We lesson plan so that we can teach, so that we can see lives transformed. So lesson planning aids in teaching. Teaching must always have as its goal spiritual formation, and so the goal is spiritual transformation. Let's look at just a few quick passages of Scripture. We'll go to Deuteronomy 32, and these are just various passages that speak of the, the importance of teaching. I would like for one of you to look up um, Deuteronomy 32.2, someone else to look up James 3.1-2. Maybe I'll just have a, you shoot your hand up if you're going to look one of these up. Okay, so you're going to do Deuteronomy, Cheryl? Okay, James 3.1-2, just throw your hand up real quick. Okay, Mark, Proverbs 4.13, okay, Richard, and Luke 6, verse 40. Okay, Susan. And let's just kind of read these back to back. And after we've read these back to back, even if you're repeating yourself, I want to go around this room in about 30 seconds and I want to hear each of you give me one phrase or one statement that should affect the way you teach from one of these four passages of Scripture. Now let's talk about, just very briefly, the difference between teaching something that is not scripturally based and teaching something that is scripturally based. So, of course, some of you may have opportunity to teach, let's just say, for instance, math and physics, just to use as an example. Dave, okay. So um, some of the, the, the principles of teaching transfer. Um, the verbal skills transfer. The writing of a lesson plan transfer. But we need to keep in mind that uh, there is something distinct and different about Christian teaching. And the Bible gives us a few key concepts to help us along. I'll just refer you to Matthew 28. So this is the last thing Jesus says before he ascends to heaven. Out of all the things he could have said, this is the last thing he says. He comes to his disciples, there's 11 of them now, and he says to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, we know he talked about that in John 5 and other passages where the Father had given him authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So one of the key, there's a couple things there. There's baptizing and gospel ministry, but out of that very small handful of tasks that God dispenses to the church prior to his ascension to heaven, Teaching is one of the things he includes in the list. Sadly, even in my vocation, I've heard pastors say things to me like, well, I'm not really a teacher, I'm just a shepherd. Well, you are, but if you are an elder, you must also be apt to teach. And you can't just throw that out the door. And I, I just, the way I, you may be the, the, the teacher pastor, I'm just the shepherd pastor, that's what I do. No, no, it's, it's not an option, especially for pastoral ministry. And it certainly... Uh, is sad when churches say, well, that's a teaching church. Ours is you know, an outreaching church. No, it's, it's both and. It's not one or the other. Every church should, in fact, be a teaching church in addition to several other things. So we have that. So it's mandated by Christ. Secondly, I'll take you to um, 
2 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, we'll look at verse 2 here, uh, where it says, uh, and well, I'll just go back to verse 1. So this is Paul. So he's like the seasoned veteran Christian talking to his, his young friend, Timothy. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we, we have a ministry of multiplication and disciple making when we teach the word of God or concepts related to the word of God. So as in a nutshell, it transforms souls. That's why we do what we do. We're looking to transform souls. We're looking to obey the great commission. We're learning to multiply ourselves in ministry. Now, I also want to uh, speak to you about my perspective on curriculum. And um, of course, we use curriculum in our church and the fact that we use it, and I happen to be the founding and lead pastor, means that we're not opposed to it or it wouldn't be here. So I don't want you to take my comments as, oh, Aaron hates curriculum. If I hated curriculum, we wouldn't use curriculum here. So I don't hate curriculum. But I think there are there is an overuse of curriculum in the church today. And I think that there are some problems that we need to be aware of when it comes to using curriculum. And when I say curriculum, I'm talking about everything from curriculum we use in Sunday school to curriculum we might use in life groups or women's ministries or men's ministries or whatnot. So let's just talk about curriculum. There's a couple positives, of course, to curriculum, which we should recognize and be thankful for. The first is that it's quick and available. Curriculum is quick and it, it's available. And when you're doing a lot of teaching and people are busy and someone has done good work in putting together curriculum, that's a, that's a plus. And I'm thankful for that. Secondly, it's usually very professional. I mean, everything's there. You have your anecdotes, maybe you have your illustrations, you have your scripture passages, you have some great questions and so forth and so on. And those are definitely, among other things, benefits to using curriculum. But there's also downsides to using curriculum. I mean, one of the, one of the downsides to using curriculum, which is minor compared to the rest that I'm going to share, is it, it is expensive. You're paying for someone else's labor. You're paying for someone else's work. And so there's an expense attached to it. If, uh, you know, if you, especially if you were in um, maybe a, 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 a lower economic country or a part of the city that struggled economically and you were forming a church and starting life groups and everybody had to buy a $20 book, that might be a little tough. You know, it, it's expensive. Uh, secondly, it just simply doesn't address all issues. It doesn't address all issues. And I don't know about you, but when I teach, I want to teach something that's sort of at that point in my life on my soul or on my mind or somehow something that I'm thinking about. And you probably pick up on that when I preach on Sundays is that in, in large part, I, I mean, I get to pick what I preach on and I preach things that I'm sort of thinking a lot about or want to think about. And in, in just using someone else's curriculum, they, it may not cover some of the thoughts or passages of scripture or ideas that I think are ripe to be discussed. The next negative is that because curriculum is published by publishing houses, it has, it has to have broad appeal to be financially worthwhile. And when it has broad appeal, what often happens is that it, it may be suitable for your church context and your 
denominational distinctives and your beliefs on a macro level, but it may never ever allow you to deal with your distinctives because it's trying to appeal to the broadest common denominator. So let me give you uh, an example of this or a little bit of an illustration. So we would consider ourselves uh, the broadest umbrella that we are under Christianity, right? But then there's another umbrella. It's a little smaller. Protestantism. Protest. Protestantism. Then there's another umbrella. Evangelical. Not all Christians are Protestants. Not all Protestants are evangelical. Then there's another umbrella. We are Reformed. And then there's another umbrella. We are Baptistic. And then there's another umbrella. Um, this, these aren't really denominational titles, but we are, uh, you know, contemporary, uh, outreach-oriented. I mean, not all Baptists are those things. So you, you sort of bring it right down to your church. Well, pu publishing companies are not going to write stuff for this group. It's not big enough of a market. They're going to probably aim for this group, or maybe even this group, or maybe just for this group. So what are the things we agree on up here? There's about six. You, maybe you could add another five to here, and another five to here, and another five to here, and five to here, and five to here. So let's say your church, hypothetically, if you were to look at all your beliefs, the macro down to the micro, you'd say, you know, there's about 30 things that we think are really important that we'd want to communicate to our students. But the curriculum we're using is only doing maybe 10 at the most. So what you're doing then is you're not giving yourself a forum to deal with your uh, distinctives. And that's why we can have kids that grow up in Sunday schools and they learn all the macros and they step into a sermon and they're like, I've never heard half this stuff before because the teachers are teaching on a different level than I am. They're teaching the macros. I'm trying to teach back and forth on all the different levels. Or you step into a life group and the same thing that can happen. You just grab a book, it's just preaching, teaching stuff on a broad, and that's all people get. So the problem with curriculum is it just there's so much you, you, you just don't have an opportunity to unpack or think through with people because they're, they're, they're trying to appeal to a broad audience. The second from final one is, and I'm not suggesting you're lazy for using curriculum, but it can breed laziness. But if you do your own lesson plan, you've got to do your own lesson plan from scratch. But I know, I know teachers that have shown up on Sunday morning, even in this church, and they've not looked at their lesson plan until they walked into the classroom, or just very, very quickly before that. They're busy, they're rushed, they forgot, whatever else. I've heard them tell me on the way down the hall, I forgot I was teaching today, I just grabbed my book, right? So it can breed laziness, and you know, if you're teaching grade threes, it's kind of hard to get it wrong. I mean, you could practically wing it. But it can breed laziness and a lack of study of the Word of God and thoughtful reflection, and certainly the whole prayer component and worship component. I mean, it's vulnerable when you got to put stuff together by yourself and get up and hope it works. <laughs> and then... The, the final thing is, is just an issue of skills. You'll never develop the skill to present a lesson or create a lesson by yourself. And that's a historic skill. It's only been in the last, I'm going to say, less than 100 years that curriculum was even invented. 
So before that, the, the church bumped along for 2,000 years and people had to make up their own stuff. When I say make it up, I mean, obviously they're studying the word of God. But in our culture, uh, it can, you know, people could spend their whole lives teaching in a Sunday school or a life group and never know how to actually put together their own lesson. And I think the benefits then of being able to put together your own lesson have spin-off effects and being able to share your faith on the fly with people because you're used to studying and dialoguing and kind of being quick on your feet, answering questions your kid ha- kids have, because those are always like ad hoc lessons, right? And all these other skills that we have where we're trying to communicate with people flow from the ability to learn to think on your feet and learn to look at the Word of God and pull it apart for yourself and develop those observation skills and put it into some sort of a presentable package and so forth and so on. It all flows, or all of these aspects of life benefit when we know how to put together a good lesson on our own. So we're not going to say, no, no more lessons from someone else in this church, but I would like to see a greater number of people feeling you know, empowered and equipped to be able to put together stuff by themselves. Um, when I was a young intern in St. Thomas, you know, I was a Bible college student and whatnot, so I, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to learn how to do this. So I would say 19 times out of 20, I would do my own material. And I am so thankful for that, that those skills back then, you know, lesson plan, peer pressure, and I'd just kind of work through it with the kids, right? Or lesson plan, sexual purity, and I'd work through it with them. Those skills helped me to develop teaching skills, preaching skills, communication skills, strategic planning skills, all those skills in large part stemmed from just my desire to want to put together my own material. And very, very, very rarely did I use someone else's material. I just didn't have a need for it. And I wasn't interested in doing it. It didn't reflect my soul at the moment. I wanted to do my own stuff. So let's talk then about um, the whole idea of being student-oriented. Now, by the way, I th- out of the corner of my eye, I think I saw one or two hands go up at some point. Does someone have a question or a comment? Maybe I was just... Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Good. Was there someone else? No? Okay. If I miss you, just interrupt me. Don't feel bad about it. So what I want to talk about is goals. So again, this is some background stuff, but some goals that um, every good teacher should nail down. Now these come from Bruce Wilkinson's book. How many of you have read Bruce Wilkinson's book or heard of it? The Seven Laws of a Learner. Does that sound familiar? Okay, Deb, Glenn, Cynthia, it looks like. Seven, excellent material, Christian guy, um, great educator, has put together this book called Seven Laws of the Learner. It's sort of a timeless book. It might be 20, 25 years old by now, but it's a timeless book. And uh, uh, when you when you read it, it's kind of like yeah, this is another eureka moment, another eureka moment, another. But it's kind of simple at the same time. It's basic, but it's like why why didn't I think of that? It's basic stuff. And um, whenever I've taught courses on teaching, and I haven't done one for a long time, but uh, whenever I've done this kind of material, I've tried to cover uh, at least some of the concepts that are contained within his his material. So basically. Um, the book, Seven Laws of the Learner, he's very much interested in um, a teacher 
developing their craft with the learner in mind. So let's say, you know, Richard is the proverbial learner, I'm the teacher. A lot of teachers go to teacher's college and they learn all the skill, the things they're supposed to say, how they're supposed to stand, how they're supposed to craft things. And he basically says, okay, we need to do that, but uh, make that the footnote. Make the heading, the primary task. Think about this person. How can I equip this person to learn? And if you, if you can uh, lock in and make that your primary goal, then it's amazing how your teaching will be transformed by that. Think about that person first and you second. Instead of, oh, how do I put it together and present it, regardless of whether people hear or not. So here are some the seven laws. He goes so far as to call them laws, not just principles, that uh, people need to take into consideration. So the first is, number one, uh, be learner-oriented. This means that the teacher, you can write this down, the teacher is responsible for the student to learn. So if you think James 3.1 is intimidating, you can throw that principle into the mix. You're a teacher. You walk into class on a Sunday morning or life group. How many of us think about that? It's actually my job to help you learn. If you don't learn, it's not, well, you're a dunce, you fail, you weren't paying attention, you were sleeping, you didn't get enough sleep the night before. It's my fault. A good teacher takes responsibility for the learning processes of the student. And he goes as far as to say, if my students don't learn, I have not taught. So I'm up here teaching a course on teaching, and as I'm doing it, I'm teaching you. It's kind of intimidating, actually. But if you go to here, I didn't learn anything tonight. I didn't do my job. So that's lesson number one. Lesson or law number two is be expectation-oriented. Be expectation-oriented. Michelle, did you not get a handout? No? Okay, I can give you a handout. I just noticed you. Anybody else? I'm sorry, Tim. I don't want you to have to strain your hand there too much. Just fill in the blanks. Anybody else need a sheet? Okay. So be expectation-oriented. Here's the idea. Expect the students to excel and achieve. I'm going to say that again. Expect the students to excel and achieve. So let me rant for a little bit. When I was a Bible college professor, one of the things that would drive me nuts, because I'd already been exposed to this, and I thought, man, this makes a lot of sense, is thinking back to professors I had, or guys I taught with, that would say, okay, we talk about how you grade. Grading is a subjective science. Uh, at least when it comes to this kind of stuff that I was grading, like essays and you know, longhand questions, maybe a little different in math, you know, it's either right or wrong. But with um, you know, with anything in the arts or theology, there's a subjectivity. You present a paper to me, and 30 other students present a paper, and you're okay. How do I grade this? And you come up with a rubric to kind of give you a bit of a weighting system, but there's still subjectivity to it. So the mindset, it's amazing how the mindset of the professor affects the ultimate grade. So we would have guys say, okay, my perspective is everybody starts off in my head as an 80 student. So I just assume everybody's an 80 student. If I read your paper and you exceed my expectations, you go up from there. 
if I read your paper and you don't meet my expectations, you go down from there. So the basic assumption is we start with 80 and we go up or we go down. Or uh, there would be guys that would teach and their idea was, um, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna work these students hard. I'm a professor. I got a PhD or whatever. You know, nobody nobody's perfect. So there's absolutely nobody in my class will ever get an A. The person, the best student in the class will get a B because nobody's an A. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's ever gonna get a 90 in my class. And my perspective was, I wanted every one of my students to get 100%. And the reason why I wanted my students to get 100% is because if I've written out a rubric, a course requirement and procedures list, here is my descriptions. Okay, you're going to write a paper. It's going to be 10 pages long, Turabian format, double space with footnotes. I want headings. I want a bibliography. I want a title page. I want the, to see the outline on this date. I want to see your intro and conclusion to bibliography on this date. And I want to see your final paper on this date. Then you're going to write three quizzes, and then you're going to write three short book reports, and yada, yada, yada. If they do exactly what I have asked them to do, that's 100%. You've done what the course requirements and procedures have asked. And if you do what I have asked you to do, then you have, it's not about being perfect, that's irrelevant. You've completed the assigned, the prescribed course of study, and you should get 100%. So if students did the work, and did it as they were asked, and did it with excellence, they would get A's in my class. I handed out several, 100%, time and time again. And it's because I felt that I had a course body of information to communicate if they learned it and presented it back to me in the different, why wouldn't they get an 100%? There's no start at 80, go up, go down, You're nobody's worthy of a 90. That's not the point of teaching. The point of teaching is not to say, I know everything there is to know about biblical theology. The point of teaching is to facilitate a learning process. And if the students have learned, then they should get the top marks available to them. So the idea here with this law is you should expect when you walk into a class, you should be an optimist. You should expect that every one of your students is going to excel and be, even if you're not grading them, an A student. You should be optimistic. This is going to uh, affect the way you respond to their questions. It's going to affect the way you coach them. It's going to affect how much material you repeat because you're not quite sure they're getting it. It's going to affect how you grade them and on and on and on and on. But if you, again, go into the classroom and you're like, these people aren't going to get this. I know my stuff. They're not going to get it. The best you can do is 80. Then I'm going to treat you like someone that's below average or someone that's average. So as a teacher, I think from a biblical perspective too, this principle you know, is grounded in our notion of people's value and worth and the fact they're filled with the Holy Spirit just like I am and this is the word of God and I want them to excel and I want them to surpass me and on and on and on. When we teach the word of God, we should, we should anticipate with great hope that people are going to get it, that their lives are going to be transformed by it and that they're at some point going to be able to communicate it back to others maybe even better than we have. So you go into it with an expectation orientation. And then third, the third law is your application oriented. Now I do not want to strip the word application of its depth 
and boil it down to simple how-to statements. Let me say it again. I don't want to strip the word application of its depth, of its profundity. We think application is like, well, what do I need to do? What do I need to say? Application is much broader than that. Sometimes it's an attitude I need to adopt, a feeling I need to have, a new way of looking at the world. Those aren't really how-to kind of things. They're sort of in a different category. But regardless, we should be application-oriented. So the formula should be knowledge without application equals arrogance. But knowledge with application equals life change. If we just give people knowledge, what's that? Just breeding arrogance. Just knowledge just puffs up, right? But we want to tie that tightly to application. And for those of you that have taken... um, you know, Bible study methods course here, you'll know that there's different ways to apply. You can aim for the head, you can aim for the heart, you can aim for the hands. In other words, you can have like mental aims, sort of emotional, attitudinal aims, or practical uh, kind of uh, hands-on type aims, or a combination thereof. Uh, And you as a teacher should know what those applicational hopes are, and of course, be trying to put them into practice in your own life. But as you think about the biblical text the thing, the concept or the theological idea that you're teaching, you should ask the question, so what? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to my students? And how can I expound the word of God and then offer good application? You don't need to dumb them down, depending on the level. I mean, your your application for a five-year-old is going to be different than a, you know, an adult class, of course. Um, The, we'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about you know, abstract versus concrete and simple versus, you know, conceptual. But the point for now is just to lock down this idea that you want to be a person that teaches with good application. Okay, so the fourth point or fourth law. Be retention-oriented. You want your students to retain what they know. One of the greatest compliments that a teacher can receive is not, I got it 10 minutes after the class ended, but I remember when you said, a year, two, three, five, 10 years later, I remember when you said dot, dot, dot. They retained it. And uh, there's reasons why people retain things, and there's reasons why people don't retain things, of course. It can do... It can relate to the passion of the teacher, the number of times it was stated, or how tied to life circumstances it might be, but we want to be retention-oriented. And this means we want to engage our students by getting across as much information as we need to in as short of a period of time as we can with the greatest amount of retention at the end. So that means you might have to jump up and down and wave your hands in front of little kids or bring, bring balloons or teddy bears or paint, paint and throw it around the room or whatever you need to do. Again, you, you vary the mode depending on your audience, but you need to, to lock it down, get their attention. Number five is be need-oriented. Now you might think, well, isn't need the same as application? Well, I mean, it, needs lead to application, but being need-oriented means that you will study your students. 
Now, if it's a class you're teaching all the time, you're going to study their personalities and their habits and how they relate to other students. But you can actually do this walking into a class with having not met anybody, because chances are you're dealing with a demographic slice. So you know, okay, I don't know who any of these people's names, I'm just showing up, I'm showing up on campus or in a class, but I know they're probably all going to be between 18 and 25, and they speak English, and they're Christians. Okay, well, that, that's going to kind of narrow the field as to how you're going to communicate with them. Or they're going to be a bunch of atheists. That's going to narrow the field as to how you're going to communicate with them. So being need-oriented means studying students, seizing their attention, and satisfying their needs. As we get into the nuts and bolts of lesson planning, we're going to show you how this takes place, but your minds are probably already spinning a little bit. Seizing their attention. Uh, you don't walk in, okay, kids, open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 4, and we're going to be reading from verses 8 to 5. And, uh, you, know, you, you, you don't generally do that. You have, hey, how's everybody's week? Tell me about your day. Uh, you know, do you have any prayer requests? Or let me tell you a story. Or you bring up a prop, or whatever it might be. You'll notice when I preach, I'm, hey, everybody, just open your Bibles, John chapter 3. We're going to, there's some remarks or, illustrations or something that are made or questions that are made. I try to vary the, the method. But there's something that happens before you look to the Word of God in my sermons. And it's usually about five to ten minutes before you look to the Word of God. Because I want you to orient yourself to my voice. I want your eyes to adjust to my presence. I want you to comfortably have your Bible in your hands. The distractions are gone. You're focused. Your mind's thinking, it's slowly picking up speed, and you're sort of prepped now to look at the Word of God. So there's different things we can do to bring that about. The sixth law is uh, to be uh, equipping-oriented. Equipping-oriented. The lesson should equip the hearer for real life and ministry should equip them. This is a word that comes up time and time again in pastoral theology classes. Our job is to equip the saints, equip the saints, equip the saints, equip the saints, to equip them. Not like in the small country church where the people think, no, the pastor's job is to do all the ministry. No, it is not. It's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And it's the same for every teacher. Your job is to equip your students for life and ministry. People need to learn to think through the issues. This is a difficult generation to live in. To make good decisions. To handle issues well. I know Susie and I have talked about this in relationship to how we parent our children. There's only six and a half years between the oldest and the youngest. But there is a world of difference between a 17 and a half year old male and a 10 year old little girl. It's, these are two different creatures, like from two different planets. <laughs> and so you don't just sort of come at them from the same. You don't come to a 17 year old and say, this is what you will do, this is how you will do it, yada, yada. You, 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 you parent them differently. Like in, in a half a year, he will be an adult. He will be an adult. And my job as a parent is not to keep him a kid for as long as I possibly can. It's to help him become an adult. So, 
you know, he might come to me and say, Dad, is it okay if I do this? And I'm like, well, yeah, you can do it, but I don't agree with that. And, and I, wanna, I, want you to, I wanna tell you why, I don't, I don't agree with that. Or, you know, here's what I'm gonna be doing. I said, well, maybe you should be doing this. You know, you got homework and work and, you, and all this stuff to balance, and sometimes 17 and a half year old males don't balance things very well, the Russells know, it's 17 and a half year old male. So, but I don't wanna micromanage his life but I will micromanage a 10 and a half year old girl's life a lot more, but I'll micromanage her life much less than a two year old, right? So you, you teach and you, you parent your children differently and it's the same when you are interacting with people in the life of a church, equipping them might mean for a small child, okay, this is what you need to do. Do this, step A, do this, then step B, and the result will be. So you're very like concrete, sort of how-to, hands-on, very kinesthetic. But I'm not gonna get up on Sunday morning and insult your intelligence by telling you every microscopic step that you need to take in order to put the sermon into practice. It's, it's gonna vary for all of you in a very different way. I'm gonna um, assume that the same Holy Spirit that's in me is in you, that you have a brain, you can sort of connect some of the dots yourself. So we, we, we treat people, we, we the equipping component changes from group to group, but nevertheless it must be there. And the final law that Wilkinson suggests is to be revival oriented. And this is the fun stuff. This is where we aim not just for the mind, not just here's the truth that you need to grasp hold of, but we aim for the will and we aim for the emotions. And as much as God can use us, we seek to shape and form the will and shape and form the emotions. And we do that through the presentation of good examples, and bad examples, and through passion and through storytelling and, and through challenging them. And, and, and there's all sorts of things we can do, but we're, we, we don't just want you to go to here with, Okay, I now know John 3 really well. No, I want you to have had a, an encounter of some sort in the word and to have some sort of a, an affirmed or modified desire when you leave. And I will do everything within my power to try to help you see that. And the rest is up to God to do what only God can do. So these are the goals that I would propose uh, we need to put into practice. Now, don't worry yourself with trying to remember all of these seven laws. Just process them on a conceptual level. Agree with them, not, yeah, that makes sense. And as you're teaching, okay, if these become values, if these become laws, you'll forget them. But if these, if you can say, actually, yeah, I, I like these, these are my values. And if they're not my values already, I'm gonna make them my values. A year from now, you might not be able to remember all seven. Who cares? But you'll be putting them into practice on a conceptual level when you teach people, put together lessons and dialogue with them and so forth. Any questions or comments you'd like to make? I know some of you have said you've read uh, this material in the past. Any comments you want to make about um, Wilkinson's material or any questions you have up to this point? Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
Good. Yeah, good. Dave? I was going to say, I've never read the book, but one of the things that they stressed in Teachers College or um, in the staff meeting or whatever, but that I sometimes find difficult to do is um, just remembering that you're when you're in a classroom or teaching, you're teaching people, you're not teaching curriculum. Mm. And there's a huge yeah. distinction. For sure. Yeah. Expecting things from your students, learning or basically teaching the student as opposed to teaching whatever you have to teach. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't agree more. I remember being in college seminary and uh, you know you'd receive an outline something like this and the profs up there and then someone asks a question he goes off on a bunny trail and all the really square students were like oh I stay on the notes and I got to get through the material and those were the those were the uh, those bunny trails were the things that impacted me the most. They were, they were more important than just running down the... It's not like this list of points that you're trying to work through in a, 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 a lesson plan is somehow divine. And I remember the professors that I enjoyed the most were the ones, yeah, they, I mean, they, they had a, a, a plan in place. They were moving in a certain direction. But the bunny trails flowed out of the dialogue and the camaraderie with the students. And they were like some very profound sort of off-the-cuff moments that were very spiritually transformative in my own life and so when i have um uh you know taught i've tried to balance the two i mean i don't want to fail the i don't want to falsely advertise this is a course on uh, you know teaching skills and we're just going to talk about 17 and a half year old males but i don't want to false that falsely advertise what i've said this course is or what a teaching plan is but I think the the offshoots, the the little balloons that come out the side, the comment boxes, the the stories, the dialogue, they can be very transformative for people and get people really thinking about things and digesting them. Um, my my um, uh, kids uh, um, have had a teacher, Maranatha, his name is Mr. Gagne's for a young teacher. They talk about him all the time. Because he's always telling stories about his life and what's he, what he's been doing and yada yada. And maybe a real square person is always wasting his time. You know, he shouldn't be talking about his kids in class. Or, you know, he just went to Mexico and uh, officiated his sister's wedding. That's, that's not what we pay him for. But you know what? Because he does that, the kids listen to him. And they have a camaraderie with him. He's still their teacher. He's not their buddy. He's their teacher. But that dialogue, a lot of feedback. That's what Mr. Gagne said. Huh? There's, there's just that. We all know, too, if people sort of are attracted to you on some level or like you, they're more apt to be taught by you. If you're just a stale regurgitator of information, what's that? You still might benefit, but on a much lesser level. So let's not underestimate the power of ethos, of the, the dynamic, the culture that a, that a teacher can create in a room to help facilitate student learning and a culture of learning and thoughtfulness. I think that's very important. Any other comments you may want to share? It's good stuff. Let's talk about us. I want to talk about us. And this is this next section is going to be very distinct for those of us that teach from a Christian perspective. Very distinct. And this is under the heading of Am I being transformed as a teacher? Am I being transformed as a teacher? So as I prepare, as I teach, as I evaluate afterward what I taught, am I 
being spiritually transformed as a teacher. So while we, we can talk about the need for wanting to see our, our um, students spiritually transformed, we also need to talk about whether or not we are being transformed. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into this, and then we'll just get into maybe the first point or so, and then we'll take um, a little bit of a break and then come back at it. So am I being transformed as a teacher? The first thing I wanted to chat with you a little bit about is the whole idea of encountering God in the preparation. I think this is very, very important, encountering God in the preparation. You want to understand the content. You want to understand the context. You want to get to a point where you can put it together in a sequential, presentable way. You toss in your illustrations, your group exercises, whatever it is you're wanting to do. But the fundamental question is, if you're going to teach the Word of God, have you encountered God in the text? How do we position ourselves for that? I'll share three or four things. Encountering God in the text is, is and must involve dying to self. If it doesn't involve dying to self, then what's going to come across is arrogance, pride, um, control at times, trying to control the classroom, uh, frustration when the students aren't behaving in the way they should be behaving, especially if it's young ones. Dying to self. As you're studying the Word of God, one of the key things God wants to see take place in us is death to self. So there needs to be uh, a humble confrontation with God's Word as we read Scripture and study it in preparation for the text. Secondly, as I've been emphasizing in our current sermon series, and even to some degree uh, different times of, over the past year, this whole idea of, of finding life in Christ. Are we finding life in Christ? Are we finding life in Christ? You know, is this Christianity or churchianity for us? We, we needn't devaluate the importance of community in the church. Fellowship. I like you people. We have a good time together. We share stories. Some of us have vacationed together, or been in life groups, or known each other for a long time, or you know, our, our kids are friends, or you know, we, we have special, we have a special bond. That's important. Being part of a church family is important, but more important than our relationship is our life in Christ. Do we have life in Christ? And this is very important for us to be growing in that. It's going to be reflected in how we communicate. Third, meditation and reflection. I've said this before. What's the difference between Eastern meditation as promoted by Eastern religions and biblical meditation? Their view of meditation would be emptying your mind, biblical meditation is filling it. Excellent. Did you guys all hear that? Emptying the mind versus filling it. So the one method, you know, you get your hands out and you're, you just empty your mind, that's supposed to somehow cure you. The Bible advocates me meditation. Read the first psalm. But it's a different kind. It's a mental chewing on, mulling over word of God. And for me, people will say, uh, how long does it take you to write a sermon? I don't know. Like, I, If you asked me that 20 years ago, I could have told you hands down 10 hours, 12 hours. Hands down, 10, 12 hours. Without question, 10, 12 hours. Every week, 10, 12 hours, write a sermon. Now if you ask me, I don't even know. Because I'm not sure what that really means. I'm, gonna, I'm thinking about it. I'm doing other stuff. I'm 
mulling it over, I'm writing some things down, I'm going to do something else, I'm, you know, coming back, jotting some stuff down, I'm, you know, studying, a con- it's here, there, it's everywhere, I don't know, a lifetime, I guess, to write a sermon. Because I have found, I mean, there has to be a, a base level of competency in understanding scripture. And that's why, especially for young preachers or teachers, you just got to spend an awful lot of time exegeting the text. I don't have to do that much anymore. Because when I open the Bible, I understand it, for the most part, right off the hop. And then what I do is, as I digest it, I want to, okay, I want to understand this part a little more, so I'll study out a word, or I'll bounce around this concept or cross-reference it. But I don't, I'm not at a point in my life where I have to go word by word through the text and exegete I just, I just know it, right? Because I've studied it a lot. So at this point in my ministry, I, I probably spend less time studying the text than I do studying the church and less time studying the text than I do mentally trying to digest the implications of the text for my own life and the implications of the text for the life of our church. And when I say implications, I'm not just talking about the how-tos. I'm talking about the profundity, the complexity, the, the, the depth of the theological richness in a text. So that's, that's, that's a, an exercise in meditation, and, and it doesn't happen overnight. But it's something that I've committed myself to, meditation or reflection upon a text, which I think makes preaching and teaching a whole lot better than if you're just raw exegesis, throw it into an outline and just sort of feed it to people line by line, line by line. So just mulling, being a thoughtful person, I guess, is what I'm trying to express there. And fourth, living a life of prayer and praise. I don't actually think prayer and praise are different, but... Um, one tends to be, uh, you know, maybe more associated with song and, and the other more with request. But I, th- I think prayer and praise really are, are one and the same. Having a, a worship life with the Lord and allowing God to like touch your heart and to find joy in him. These are the kinds of things that are going to assist you in the task of growing as a teacher. And being able to unpack the word of God for people because it's going to flow from the richness of a relationship that you have with the Lord. And by the way, uh, if you are a teacher, you are wearing a big target. A big target. The devil is going to want to pick on you. That's soft language. Remember years ago, remember the Far Side comics? Remember the Far Side? They're, they're pretty funny. And there's, there's the one I, I won't forget is um, this, uh, this deer that's standing in the forest. Do you remember that, Allison? Mm-hmm. And it has like a, a, a series of concentric circles on its side, like uh, red, white, red, white, red, white. And the caption is, that's a heck of a birthmark. You know, it's like a big target on the side of this deer. And, uh, you know, in many ways, we wear that target. Because if you are going to stand up before people or sit before people or whatever it is and help them to understand the word of God and apply it to life, do you think the devil's going to like that? No, he's going to want to discourage you and pick on you, and he's going to want to make you think that you stink at it, and or make you think you're really good at it when maybe you're not, or you know he's going to play with your pride or play with your self-esteem, or he's going to present you with you know temptation uh, to take you out of out of the mix, out of ministry. Um, you need to be aware of that. That. Uh, if you're going to expound the word of God to people and teach it, you are engaged in an act of spiritual warfare. 
And if you're not praying and praising, and again, we're never going to be perfect. We're always going to have down days and down weeks, maybe down months. But if you're not seeking to grow, if you're not like the real deal that actually loves the Lord and is seeking to foster that, and all you are is just the talking head that's regurgitating something you study that week out of a commentary, you're not going to last very long. Even if you last a long time, you're not going to be effective. So I, I just really encourage you to be growing in your walk with the Lord and bathing it in prayer and praise as you are uh, preparing for the act of teaching. Well, let's pause there. We're actually going to uh, spend a little bit of time in prayer. Uh, we'll just hand these out. Uh, we'll take uh, a few minutes to um, pray. Uh, you can pray individually or in pairs or maybe triplets. Okay, so um, we're talking about being transformed as a teacher. So encountering God in preparation, that's hands down number one. Second thing is, is my Bible knowledge increasing? I did not say, is it perfect? Is it complete? You know, is it on the level of your supervisor? Whatever it might be. I'm just saying, is my Bible knowledge increasing? I think a mark of a good teacher is you're always learning, right? So we've, we've heard this kind of... Uh, um, uh, these, these kinds of principles batted around that a teacher is first a learner, that kind of thing. And I think that's very true, that you may have uh, a depth of knowledge that may sustain you for teaching youngsters for years and years and years to the point you would, would, wouldn't even necessarily have to open the Bible. You just got, you're so far ahead of them, you wouldn't have to. But it can easily become stagnant uh, and most of you are also going to have opportunities at times to teach people that are maybe asking some complex questions or time changes. So you got to apply it differently. So are you increasing your understanding of God's Word? And I'm going to suggest there's a couple uh, aspects to that. The first is Bible knowledge, or sorry, Bible content. And the second is theology. What's the difference? We talk about increasing in Bible content and theology. What's the difference? Under which category? Uh, like a Bible, 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 actually, uh, historical thing. Okay, yeah. But also, they have a message. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, in theology, that's my understanding. The theology could be more like a uh, more directly teaches teach like words of God. Okay. Or the message, or they understood in general about the message of God. Okay, I think you're right on right on track. Yeah, let's let's kind of flesh this out a little bit more. Um, content will be what it says or what's in it, and theology will be what it means. Okay. Yeah. Now, yes, that's also true. Yeah. Um, anybody else want to kind of add a little bit to that? Maybe put a different angle on it. Theology. Okay. Okay. Subject. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's think about um, surgery. So let's say you want to be a surgeon. I've never obviously studied any of this stuff. I'm just kind of making this up on the fly. But um, 
probably the way it would work is you would want to know biology. So that would be like the, the, the content. You want to know about biology, how cells work and tissue works and all that kind of stuff. Then you would want to know about how that biology works in a bodily system. So how different organs interrelate. And then you learn the practical procedures for cutting and suturing and whatnot. And it's kind of the same way. So Bible content, it's not about being more deep or less deep. Bible content is just kind of knowing what the book of John says, who the people are, what the message is, the historical, as Aileen mentioned, the geographical, those kinds of things. So just the content of scripture. Theology is about systems. So just as there's the organs work in systems, theology is about systems. So for example, you want to know about the Holy Spirit. You're going to go to about you know, 100 different passages for that one. You're not just going to go to one. You're going to go to several. You want to know about who Jesus is. You're going to go to several. You want to know about sin, the doctrine of sin. You go to several passages. And you systematize them. You bring them together. You see how these scripture passages intertwine. And that becomes your theology. So formally speaking, we differentiate between biblical theology, which is the study of the text, and what we call systematic theology, which is where we systematize certain concepts or ideas that come up time and time again in the Bible. So it's important to know both of those things. Because let's say you're just teaching Romans chapter 8. You're just teaching the Bible content. That's the nature of your course, your class. You're just teaching through the passage. But someone asks a question, well, what does justified mean? Well, if you haven't done good systematic theology, you won't know because the passage may not take time to explain it. So that's where you got to have like a broader knowledge of the systems of Scripture and be growing in those. And then also just the ability to pull apart a text and understand it and ask good questions of it and so forth and so on, right? So both of those things are important. Another idea I want to present to you is understanding the difference, and these can be phrased in any several ways. I'm just going to use uh, this phraseology. Fundamentals, distinctives, and lesser matters. Fundamentals, distinctives, and lesser matters. Now, let me give you a, a passage from Romans 14. Paul says, as for one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of, the, of another? Now, for those of you that maybe have studied this a little bit, what is he talking about? You can think about 1 Corinthians too. What's what is what's this whole eating vegetable stuff and opinions and don't quote like how does that relate to faith? Like we don't sit around, hey, did you eat vegetables today? Why or why not? But this is the conversation that's being had here. So what is this about? What's the background to this dispute? Okay. So because we have an early church with people coming from different religious backgrounds and food has an association in some of those religions with idolatry, food, believe it or not, became a contentious issue. What's on the menu? 
was a contentious issue in some of the early churches. Paul said, don't dispute about stuff like that. Okay, now keep that in mind. That's Romans 14. Let's, let's see what the same writer has to say in Galatians chapter 1, um, verse 8. We'll back up to, uh, to verse 7. Oh, we'll go, we'll go back up to verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Literally, that's the word anathema. You've probably heard that. Damned for all of eternity. Okay, so this is a a much more strict Paul than it is in Romans 14. Why? A much more important issue. So here's here's what I want you to be thinking about as you're teaching the Word of God and you're being asked questions. Differentiate. What are the fundamentals? What are our distinctives? And what are the lesser matters? Now let me let me talk about the middle category because it's not addressed directly in Scripture for the simple reason that the church was young and hadn't had an opportunity to get in any fights yet, or very few. So fundamentals are things like Jesus is God, Jesus is Trinity, Jesus was born of a virgin, Jesus is coming again. The Bible is the word of God. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. These are what we call the fundamentals. Or sometimes they're called the cardinal truths. Or the cardinal verities. These are like the things that you should be willing to take a bullet for. And you should know these things. There's at least six of them. These are the things you should be willing to take a bullet for. If anybody starts messing with this stuff or preaching, like this is going to be a major issue. Because these are like, They all have implications for heaven or hell. All of them have implications for heaven or hell. The disputable matters or lesser matters are like dietary choices. Okay, this guy's a vegan, this guy's a vegetarian, this guy drinks beer, this guy doesn't drink beer. These kinds of things. Should a woman cut her hair or not cut her hair? Should we wear a head covering in church or not wear a head covering in church? These are lesser matters. I don't know if anybody that's going to say, if you get this one wrong, you're going to hell. Right? They're, they're, it's okay to have an opinion on these things. It's okay to say, I, I, I feel I shouldn't do this because of my past. Or I feel I have freedom to do this because it's not an issue for me. It's okay to have differences of opinion on these things. The distinctives are generally tied to historical disputes that would make it difficult for us to have warm fellowship if we couldn't agree on them. So these would include things like, um, you know, whether we baptize babies or believers. It's not a heaven or hell issue, but it's it's kind of hard to have warm fellowship if we don't agree on that. Whether females can be pastor elders in the church or whether they can't be, it's kind of hard not to, you know, agree on that one and have warm fellowship because it affects leadership in the life of a church. These are the kinds of things that are um, important for us to have conversations about, whether we believe you can 
lose your salvation or whether uh, you know, uh, God eternally secures us. There will be people who believe they have lost their salvation that will be in heaven. They're going to be surprised that they can't. I figured I'd throw that one in there just to clarify in case you weren't sure where I stood. But um, these are like what we would call sometimes denominational distinctives. Now, we're not a denomination, never have been. We're not part of a denomination. But the point is we're, we're part of a cluster of churches, an association of churches that has certain beliefs in common. But even in our churches, in our fellowship, there's a lot of differences on this ring. And there's even some in here you're not sure what ring they fall into. So, the point being is that when you're teaching and preaching the Bible, you should kind of know what you pick a fight on, what you feel really convicted about, that it's part of our church identity. Nope, this is the, we drew a line in the sand on this one. We believe this to be true. And the stuff where there's you know room for opinion on it, differences of opinion. But a lot of people aren't, they don't understand these three categories, and so they think having conversations about whether you know there's a hell or not, that's sort of up for grabs. No, it's not. It's not up for grabs here. You can ask questions about it. We can have dialogue about it. But if you're a teacher in this church, you need to know we stand on a particular side of a line on that one, and that's what you're expected to teach and defend, right? So these are, these are sort of just different categories that helps us to understand. And we teach all of these things. I don't have any problem touching on any one of these things. I think they're all teachable points. But... Uh, we need to tip our students off in some way, shape, or form as to their level of importance. So we don't want people thinking, oh, you know, we, we take a stand on uh, contemporary music. We only do a modern form of contemporary music. But that's you can't be a Christian if you don't do that. That's a fundamental. No, it's not. So we may say that's important to us, and we do that at the church. There's some missional reasons why our music is as it is, or why we spend money on missionaries like we do, but they're not, we're not going to badmouth another church because they choose to take a different angle on that. But we will badmouth other churches that mess with the fundamentals because Paul did that. So these are important things for us to think about. And then with regard to Bible knowledge, are we connecting the dots between truth and practice? Asking the question, so what? Are we connecting the dots? Third, am I making personal life application? Have I let the lesson transform me? Now, I don't want to overstate this, okay? I don't want you to think that I'm like this spiritual, super spiritual dude that, uh, you know, masters everything he preaches and, you know, locks it all down and is practicing it with perfection. If I were to make that claim, there's a lady in the back that would help you to see that that's not true. Um, but I will say this, I, I have a personal commitment that I desire to see and allow whatever I preach and teach to wash over me first, as it relates to the word of God. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that when I teach a class on Greek that I'm prayerfully mulling over how a aorist participle is going to affect my walk with the Lord. But when it comes to like preaching and teaching the word of God, I want to be impacted by it first. Now, it's not always like, oh, I'm super convicted. Sometimes it's like, I'm encouraged. I'm doing this well. I learned this lesson a long time ago. Thank you, Lord. Other times it's, I'm being rebuked here. I don't have this one down. So there's different ways that the word of God, it can just encourage that we're doing things well. It can 
uh, it can rebuke, or it could be just be a softer thing. Oh, that's that's interesting. I never really thought about that. I, you know, that's that's kind of a cool um, concept about God that I never thought about before. Point is, I want to sort of, you know, get into it. And so for me, uh, next to maybe someone saying, "Hey, you know, you're teaching the Word of God faithfully," by far, well, maybe I'll ask you, what do you think? What do you think the greatest compliment? would be for me to receive from you and the greatest compliment for you to receive from one of your students. What should it be? Did you go through my garbage this week? Did my wife call you? Did someone tell you to preach that sermon? Happens all the time. It's hilarious. I love it, actually. Uh, When you... Uh, even even a little while ago, I w- this is several months ago. I was preaching a sermon, and uh, totally unbeknownst to me, another staff person in our church had had a conversation with some people in the church about an issue they were struggling with. Just days before I preached, and I go up and I preach, and they thought that the staff person had come and tipped me off, and I had preached for, with them in mind. They were kind of a little bit upset about that. <laughs> I never had any conversation with Aaron at all. And I, and I said, yeah, please, t- I didn't even know about this because they came to me after to tell me. I, I thought it was kind of funny, actually. But um, th- the reason it becomes, it's actually not that difficult to preach into people's worlds if you live in it too, and if you just think a little bit. It's not, it's not difficult. Um, you know, we all live in the same world. We all breathe the same air. We all eat the same food. It's, it's, not, it's not rocket science to be relevant if you live in the same world as the people you teach. And same with you as a teacher. Like, don't assume people are living in a different world than you. Everybody's got different stories and backgrounds. But if we could draw a circle, and in that circle, all the descriptions of a human being, it would be, I think, a very small sliver that makes us different from one another. The rest is all the same. Same kind of hopes, dreams, fears, concerns. We, we, because we're living in Canada and there's a lot of emphasis on pluralism and multiculturalism, we do this really good job of emphasizing the differences. You're Latino, you know, you're, you're European, you're male, you're female, uh, you know, you're 60, you're 30. We emphasize all these differences. I, I just find the more and more I do ministry, people are so much alike, so, so much alike. And I, that just becomes clearer and clearer and clearer to me the older I get, that we are far more alike than we are different. And while it's fun to sort of talk about the differences, the differences are just a, a fraction of the similarities. And um, if you understand that, then really all a good teacher needs to do is preach or teach to herself every week, and you'll preach or teach to your students. And that may mean sort of going back a few years if you're preaching to like a generation 20 years younger. Oh, they have, you know, all these technologies and all. That, that, that's just, that's part of the sliver. They're still a lot like you were at that age. Just talk to them about what you were like at that age. And, and you'll, you'll hit the nail right on the head time and time and time and time and time again. Now, a couple other things. It doesn't help, it doesn't hurt to be relational. It doesn't hurt to have uh, diversity in your friendships. It doesn't hurt to be in a life group with people of different ages. Uh, it doesn't hurt to have um, cross-generational relationships. Uh, it doesn't hurt to actually do some things outside of the church, spend time with unbelievers. 
all of these things will help you to see what people are going through in case you forgot and uh, just preach into their world. So the greatest compliment for me is, you know, in some way, shape or form, uh, you know, you, you preached into my life. The next one is, um, am I tapping into my creativity and imagination? I think we as evangelicals have have started to realize that the arts and creativity and imagination are actually God-given. Uh, it took us a long time to, to, to move beyond propositionalism. So the, the historical background is that we have this radical event that took place called the Reformation, where the church rightly reacted to uh, the church formulating its doctrine based on tradition and it's the way it's always been done. And there was this like radical return to the word of God and people wanted to lock it down. But right after that, we had this movement across Europe called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was like a philosophical movement that basically um, preached and taught that uh, truth and that which was right could be attained by rational processes. So this is the rise of science. Science is a rational uh, discipline. And there was this heavy emphasis on, on figuring things out. And that led into like the Industrial Revolution, and the rise of evolutionary science and all that kind of stuff. This, this movement of, uh, with a heavy emphasis on the rational. We can figure it out. We can figure out the origin of the world, uh, you know, the meaning of life. And, and religion started to sort of be pushed to the side. And those that retained the label of Christianity, many of them became, became liberals, especially in Germany. And so then in the 1800s, we have this rise of uh, liberalism among the German churches and the German theologians started preaching the Bible isn't true because, you know, we can't find this manuscript and we're, they're, they're applying the scientific method to it, which isn't supposed to be applied to the Bible and they couldn't figure out the answer to their questions. And so people started teaching that the Bible wasn't true. And then, you know, that flowed into the social gospel right into the 1960s and whatnot. And uh, as evangelicals fought back, well, they decided, well, let's fight rationalism with rationalism. So we're going to become purely propositional in our theology. And this is where we have the rise of doctrinal statements. And, uh, you know, every church has doctrinal statement and everything's formulated in a, in a didactic, deductive way. And preachers from the, I, I did a, a master's degree thesis in this aspect. I studied the, the influence of, of, um, rationalism upon preaching theory and it's interesting that from the late 1800s right through to the 1970s and 80s the dominant form of preaching was propositional preaching to the point that some evangelicals think that's the only way to preach you know you have like pro you present propositions didactic truth statements to people point one point two point three point four point five whatever it's all points point 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 interestingly large swaths of the bible are not propositional the Psalms aren't propositional. The Proverbs aren't propositional. Ecclesiastes isn't propositional. Most of the Gospels isn't propositional. Surprise, surprise, much of the epistles aren't propositional. Revelation's not propositional. God reveals himself to us in propositions, but he also reveals to himself to us in imagery, in story, in poetry, in wisdom literature, in song, in narrative. And yet we often limit our preaching and teaching to propositional statements. And 
all of that, all that background is to say that um, we're so propositional that some of us don't even feel comfortable with, with the arts or creative expression or music or poetry or proverb or that kind of stuff in our teaching, our preaching, our worship. Uh, but what has happened out in the world is we've moved beyond uh, the rational enlightenment into a postmodern era. And postmodernists, the traditional definition of postmodernism is that postmodernism downplays or denies the validity of objective data. And we see this in a lot of young people today. They don't believe there's truth to be found at all. Right? It's an it's extreme reaction to modernism and to rationalism. Oh, there's no truth at all. And um, the Christian church would do well to speak into the lives of the postmodernists by saying, you know what, you're actually partially right that not everything is discernible and knowable via propositions, that you can actually uh, experience encounter truth on an experiential level. Like I've had several personal encounters with Jesus Christ that are not propositional in nature, they're personal. I've had encounters with God and worship that are not propositional in nature, they're personal. Uh, I've had encounters with God's revelation of himself in creation that are beautiful, but they're not propositional. You know, a sunset, a newborn baby, a beautiful meadow, creation, you know, these are not propositions where there's an encounter with God that is taking place that might be describable using propositions, but it's actually not proposition. The vehicle whereby God delivers that particular form of revelation is not in a proposition. And so when we teach and preach and when we do church, it's okay for us to use the creative arts. Um, it's okay for us to think about architecture and what architecture communicates about God and about what poetry and song and music communicates about God and what experience and storytelling communicates about God. Because these are ways that God ch has chosen to reveal himself to us in scripture. So to foster the imagination and uh, creativity, we, we have freedom to use several different methods and modes. Now, I don't think you need to use all of these, uh, but like I'm, I'm going to read a list to you here in a moment. Some of these I, I like better than others. And I might even be better at than others on the list, but for you it might be totally different. So they, they would include things like the use of of, uh, of media or the use of of uh, arts. Um, Steve Jones, he's the president of our fellowship right now. He's actually an artist. He went to school to be an artist first, and sometimes when he goes to churches, he he paints watercolor while he preaches. Now, I know how to paint, but I I don't know how I could do that on the fly in a sermon. I'm not, I'm not that quick at it. Sam's a very good painter, by the way. If you ever want to see Sam's gallery, he's very good at it. Uh, give him a little plug there. Uh, invite yourself over to his house one of these days. Uh, the use of props. Uh, some people love to use props in teaching or preaching. Uh, the use of vertimal, uh, uh, vert verbal ornamentation. Just experimenting with words, word plays, lingo, language, new words, blended words. The use of storytelling, the use of humor. I, we could just keep going on and on and on. There's different ways that we can communicate that go beyond propositions.
The next one uh, is something that I've uh, it may may be reflective of the fact that I'm now middle-aged, but um, I think there's a, a biblical rooting to it, and I think this is this is important to talk about for for teaching, and that is personal personal care. So I've written a number of things down here, um, just asking the question: Do I tend to personal health, rest, prayer, and getting my mouth and mind working? <laughs> Because they can get stiff too, right? So, um, just a few things I want to sort of throw out to you, and I, I don't—I don't mean this in any sort of an insulting way, but I just want to maybe challenge your thinking. If—if if we, we all have different body shapes, of, 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 of course, so it's not necessarily a, a comment based on body shape, but if we appear to be unhealthy people, physically unhealthy, and it's clear that our our lack of health doesn't stem from maybe just a disease we have, but it's a lack of personal discipline. I think that communicates something about our walk with the Lord. And if, to use an extreme example, I was 900 pounds, and it wasn't because I had glandular issues, but because I ate you know, 55 Big Macs a day, but then I got up in front of the church and said, you know, you need to you know, be disciplined in Bible reading and disciplined in prayer. And, you know, di- wouldn't it, there sort of seemed to be like a visual disconnect between, you know, my preaching of discipline, but a lack of personal discipline. So I, th- I think it's important for the sake of testimony and believability for us to at least, I mean, there's a range of normal, but for us to take some interest in body care, it doesn't mean that our bodies need to be more important to us than our souls, but there, I, I personally would find it difficult to sit in a church under the leadership of a pastor that was outside of the range of normal when it comes to physical discipline. And some of you may say that's weird, but I, I would have a really hard time with that because I would automatically connect. If this guy is not disciplined in his body care, is he really as disciplined as he says he is in spiritual matters? So I think there needs to be some attention paid to that. And I'll, I'll, I'll make an additional comment to that. If you are a missionary, and if you're going to be an effective Christian witness in this world, you need to be one starting like now. If you're a missionary in this country, meaning that you have an awareness of culture, we live in a fitness-oriented culture. It's part of our culture. It's not always been that way. But in our culture, fitness is kind of important. And we might say, well, in certain senses, it's become people's gods. Yeah, I get that. But to be culturally relevant, to, to speak into people's lives, you need to sort of be aware of the values of culture too. And I think culture on some level rightly has said, look, we, we want to take care of ourselves. And so for you to be a believable teacher, preacher, minister to, especially if you're teaching in context with their unbeliever, you need to sort of realize that this is important to people. And they may find you less than believable if you don't take care of yourself. Um, Secondly, just as a just as a very practical uh, reality, I I find preaching extremely physically fatiguing. You can ask my wife. Like, I if I especially if I'm doing like Saturday night to Sunday morning, I don't know what it is. Like I I think I'm reasonably physically fit, and you know I can work my butt off in anything physical hour after hour after hour week after week like I can build stuff and tear stuff apart 
but man, you put me up there and preach, and I feel like I've worked like an 80-hour week all at once. And I think there's, a, there's adrenaline to that. There's a physiology to that. There's also a spiritual dimension to that. I mean, your mind is like running on eight cylinders from the time you show up till the time you leave, like five, six hours later. You're talking to people. You're looking around. You know, you're processing. You're, there's a spiritual dynamic you're worshiping. And so um, I, I think on a, the act of teaching where there's back and forth and pauses, I don't find as physically exhausting, but it still is somewhat physically exhausting. So to take care of your body gives you more gas in the tank to be a good teacher. So this would include things like, um, especially if you're teaching on a Sunday, like don't stay up till midnight on Saturday night. I, I try to go, about a, go to bed a little earlier on Saturday night because I know I'm going to wake up earlier on Sunday morning. So making sure that you, you have proper rest. Um, you know, you can preach and teach a lot better with eight hours than five. So taking care of your, your rest, like saying, you know, pre teaching is so important to me, I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to not watch the movie tonight. I'm going to not stay up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to bed because I want to be my best for my students in the morning or the evening or whenever it is you're doing your thing. Um, another thing that helps me is um, uh, prayer uh, leading into and during the act of teaching and preaching. Um, so, okay, there's a few ways that works for me. So when I, let's take uh, preaching, for example, on Sunday mornings. So typically what I would do is while I'm worshiping, I am genuinely trying to engage in worship. It might seem like a no-brainer, but I'm deliberately trying. I don't want my worship to start when I start preaching. I believe worship is an act of preaching, or sorry, preaching is an act of worship too. But I want to truly engage with God in the song and prayer and testimony, whatever it is that's taking place. And I will ask, it varies week to week. I might say, God, you know, I'm feeling tired today. Like, give me an extra measure of strength. Or my mind feels foggy. Give me clarity. Or give me humility. Or, you know, I, I don't have this one down, but I still feel I need to preach it, you know, go beyond me or whatever it might be. Those, those are the kind of things, you know, you're looking over at me up front on Sunday. Those are the kind of things that I'm praying now, you know. Um, and sometimes there's something that takes place in the middle of a sermon that is carnal. Or um, like I have a sinful thought all of a sudden, or someone looks at me in a certain way and I, I momentarily despise them for that. Or... I have a moment of pride or something like that. And I, and I, I mean, I'm just preaching away. You don't even notice it, but I'll often just in my head, like, Lord, take that from me. That's gross. And just kind of move through it. And I think in teaching and preaching, we have to be a, a willing to do that, like on the fly. And it's not one of those prayers that starts with dear God and ends with, you know, in Jesus name, amen. It's just a real, you know, quick prayer. But I think that's really important for us to be in tune to, what's going on in our lives as we're teaching and communicating God's word. And then, um, very practically, uh, some of you may know, I, I, I might have shared this with some of you before, and you, you're probably just going to think it's really stupid, but it works for me. And it's just based upon uh, just, just a little theory I have. And that is that um, being able to teach and preach what, what we're going to communicate should be on paper. The essence of what we're going to communicate is, should be on paper. But 
I think that you have to be able to develop the skill of speaking on your feet, answering questions and dialoguing with people. And I think a large part of that involves the memory. If you don't have a, a, a good memory, then, and there's different kinds of memory. Like I don't have a good memory for dates and details. My wife will say, hey, remember when we went there? No, no, I have no recollection of that. But I will remember concepts. Like I just lock, if I hear them once, I'll remember concepts. And I just lock those down. And uh, so in order, f because I'm communicating concepts, I want to sort of, in a sense, turn on that part of my mind when I'm going to teach or preach. So what I do to turn on that part of my mind, and maybe this doesn't even work, I'm just making myself think it does, is I will recite three alphabets. So, uh, I mean, Abby's, Abby often comes to church with me and she'll hear me doing this. So I will, out loud, I will go through the Greek alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, and the English alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, take them out of PG. And I do it partly because those are things I've memorized and I want to turn that part of my head on. And secondly, if I go through all three of those alphabets, I have verbalized every sound that I will use in a sermon on Sunday, plus a whole lot more. So my thinking is it kind of gets like my mouth muscle working. Because sometimes when I'm preaching, it almost feels like your mouth's asleep. It's like, i got to wake this thing up, especially if it's early in the morning. So if I go through different alphabets that I know, and sometimes if I'm still feeling that's not working, I like start quoting some scripture or something. I try to like turn the tongue on, turn that part of my mind on. So when I get up, I feel like, okay, I'm awake. My head's awake. My memory's awake, my tongue's awake, and you know I can sort of get going. So those are like little things that I, I, no one ever taught me that stuff. I just stumbled across it, and it works for me. And if it works for you to help you along, and, I know, and it probably makes you think I'm kind of weird, but those are the, you know little little tricks that that just help me in um, preaching and teaching. Um, I also drink a lot of water before I preach because I find that. Uh, like preaching, if you're going to preach with a good voice, you got to bring the air up through your vocal cords and out your mouth. I used to preach in my mouth like this, and then I realized I got to preach out of my throat. And in order to preach out of your throat, you use a lot more air, which means you're blowing out more steam. That's why preachers have a lot of hot air, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think I lose a lot of... Uh, um, water when I preach. And so I, I hydrate and I still feel like, man, I think uh, I got to go like chug down a gallon of water or something afterwards, right? Um, another little tip is you shouldn't drink caffeinated beverages, especially with creams and stuff in them before you publicly speak. Now, I will say this, that I actually do that now, but I didn't probably the first six to 650 times I preached. Um, I do it now, but I try not to do it within an, an hour and a half of when I'm actually preaching. So if I get up and uh, if I have to preach at, let's say, um, so the service gets going at 9.30, I don't think I would, it would be rare that I would ever have a caffeinated beverage after 7.30. So there's like a good two hours in there because I don't want it to like mess with my vocal cords and stuff. And um, so those are just like different things like being being attentive to your 
to your diet and your overall health is something that I try to commit myself to because I don't want my lack of physical discipline or you know, desire to stay up and watch another movie to make me less than I should be. Because I take, I take very seriously God's calling to expound his word to his people. And that means sometimes I got to go without. Sometimes I want to stay up late. People invite you out or something. I'd like to, but no, I'm not going to do it. Because I want to be on my A game as much as I can on any given day that you know, you know, I'm communicating God's word to people. So those are some things. You can sort of apply those different and come up with your own little list of what works for you. But those are some things that I think are important. And then just bear with me. I know we're about four minutes over time, but I just want to finish this section. So I want to talk a little bit about aftercare, feedback, and time for review. So this is like after the act of teaching, there needs to be some evaluation time. So this is mostly mental. Um, uh, For me, um, it might surprise you. Okay, so I'm in a public place in this church. You all know that. So you might assume, okay, if you're teaching a life group or a a Sunday school class, and you're like, no one ever really tells me how I'm doing. When Aaron must get a lot of feedback. And I'm not saying this for you to then next week give me feedback. In fact, just don't do it for a while, even if you want to, because otherwise it'll feel (laughs) real weird. But I would say, like on average, you might get one to two comments a week. Okay, So that's not very many, really. You know, there was 606 people here on Sunday. And... I probably got five or six or seven comments because of the nature of what we're talking about on Sunday, either through email or in person. But that's a small fraction, right? So the point is, is and, and most of those comments are like questions. But very rarely would you actually get true critical feedback on preaching form. Almost never. So the same is true with most of you as preachers or uh, preachers and teachers. You're, you're probably not going to get a lot of feedback. So you need to learn to be a self-evaluator, a self-evaluator. And I think you can actually do that quite well. Now, um, self-evaluation, it's okay to set up boundaries. I do not, I don't really want negative feedback within an hour or two after I preach because I feel kind of sensitive at that point for whatever reason. Like, call me Monday if you had a problem with what I said, right? (laughs) But, and then I won't answer, I'll come Tuesday. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, call me Monday at 10 at the office here and see if I'm here. Um, so getting feedback is important, but those of you, by the way, that are listening to preachers and teachers, don't give them feedback right away. It's just, it's too sensitive. Let them have a little bit of time out of the gates before you give that. But you should look, look for feedback, but make sure you're looking, looking for it for the right reasons, um, because you can look for feedback to sort of stroke the ego. You can look for fee- feedback to sort of feel good about yourself. Um, and you, you just have to know yourself and know when you're going down that trail and stop and turn around. At the same time, we all, we, we, we live out our lives in the context of a community, so we need some feedback. Like, is what I'm doing, is this working? You know, or am I totally missing the mark? And obviously, if you're married, your spouse can be a good source of feedback. Or if you're co-teaching, the co-teacher, you can get together and say, hey, I'd, I'd, I would really like for you to tell me rightly or wrongly how you think I'm doing. Or if you're like a Sunday school teacher and you're just kind of in the room by yourself, you could ask Joanne, hey, do you mind coming in every three or four months and just sitting in a watch? I want feedback from you. Ask people to come and observe you so that you can get feedback. 
But I actually think the greatest feedback, and this might sound like super spiritual, but I think the greatest feedback is by being attentive to God and by being attentive to God's Holy Spirit. And he, is maybe not week to week, but he over the long haul will uh, create within you a sense, a strong sense, a discerning sense as to whether what you're doing is bearing fruit or not. You'll just kind of know it. At least you should know it. So pay attention to God's gentle, still voice in your mind. Very practically, review and reflect upon what you said, what you did, how you answered questions. I like to do that. Okay, let's say I'm down at the university and I'm doing a Q&A. You know what? I think next time I'm going to answer it this way, or I'm going to kind of approach it from this angle, or, yeah, I was preaching that sermon, and, yeah, that kind of worked. I never thought about it. It was sort of off the cuff, but it worked. Or, you know, I tried to do it. There's just no feedback, so I'm not going to do that again, or... Um, you know, maybe I used too many big words or I used too, too few, too few big words. I kind of, my language was a little bit, um, dry or dead or stale. I need to sort of ornament it a little bit. These are the kind of evaluative comments that go through, through, through my head. And of course I've preached a lot, but, um, so you have a lot of other sermons to, to base it on. Um, but just thinking through, not so much your lesson plan, because I actually don't go back very often and evaluate what I wrote. I evaluate what I preached. I don't go back very often and evaluate my lesson plans. I evaluate what I taught. And um, just being being willing to to be hard on yourself, but also gentle on yourself, finding that balance, and reviewing and reflecting and mulling over what you did, but don't do it for very long. Okay because you might be a little bummed out, especially those of us that are like, you know, high achievers. We can just sort of bum ourselves out. So just let God do what God does too. Um, I mean, God can also use sort of a flat, stale sermon or lesson to impact people's lives. I, I believe that. And you can have like a really artistic, well-ornamented, strategic, uh, well-thought-out lesson, and it just falls flat. So you just never know what God will do. I'll tell you a quick story. This is a story going back about probably 17 or 18 years. When I was uh, pastoring at Campbell Baptist, I was preaching, um, I think on a Sunday morning or evening, I'm not sure. And uh, <clears throat> in the middle of the sermon, it's only, this only happened to me maybe twice. I've, I've preached many sermons where I'm like, this is just not working. But... Um, this sermon, I started, I felt my face was going red. I felt like embarrassed that I was communicating so poorly. Like it was just terrible. And I had to like will myself into moving through it because I felt this is just a rotten sermon. This is not coming together. I'm not getting the words out and so forth and so on. And uh, I was so embarrassed that when the service ended, I, I left the room and um, I don't think anybody noticed, but I said, Susie, hey, let's, let's just get going. And so literally, we didn't just stick around and talk to people. I just got in my car and left. I felt, I felt like humiliated. And my, my wife, you know, she's uh, an encouragement to me, but she doesn't, she doesn't make it a habit of giving me evaluative comments, right? It's not necessary. But that week... We're driving home, and she said, that is the best sermon you've ever preached. <laughs> what? I was shocked. Like, I thought she was, like, playing with me or something. Um, and 
I still felt like it was a horrible sermon. I still do, but I just that's just such a reminder to me that God can sometimes, uh, you know, God can sometimes do with something that's not that great things that are great. And um, so in all this lesson planning and stuff, let's not forget that God is in the mix and this is a divine act when we teach and preach, okay? So um, the next thing I wanted to tell you about, very, very important, uh, is... Um, uh, we're out of time. You'll have to wait till next week. <laughs>